Hey guys, Brian Beeler here with the Storage Review Podcast, and today I've got a special guest, Kevin O'Brien, coming out out of the lab, in from the lab. How do you characterize that? Down from the lab. Down from the lab uh, for this podcast. And today we just wanted to do sort of a, a storage review answers your burning desires series of burning questions, I think probably is better appropriately Hopefully said. the questions are not on fire, but you never know. <laughs> the desires might be on fire. Yeah. Uh, so we're just going to do a quick hit on some of the direct Q&A we've gotten over the last couple of weeks that stands out that we think is worth conversation. And then uh, a couple other points that uh, we've collected off of social media over the last week or so, and just do an informal conversation. And uh, you know, if you guys have thoughts or topics or or like this uh, Kevin forward podcast approach, then let us know and we'll uh, we'll keep going. But let's just jump into it. We've been working a lot with small NAS yeah. for uh, gosh, almost a decade at this point, and we've seen what Synology, QNAP, Asus Store. Asus Tech, CyberStore. Western Digital. I mean, oh, gosh, I forgot about WD. Even big brands. I mean, there's been... The market's really changed. It's changed, but one thing has stayed the same is that Synology and QNAP have been kind of the leaders in terms of overall package when you look at what we loosely call like package NAS, where you get the hardware and software bundled together and you just add your own disks for the most part. Yeah. Um, so the first question that is an aggregate of questions... Uh, it was in response to our uh, Synology DS1522 Plus review. And the question is essentially, what's the best NAS? This is maybe the trickiest question to answer, even in that small NAS category of six bays down. Where do you start? Uh, I mean, it, it's tough because before you could say, well, Synology and QNAP were really similar and maybe lean towards QNAP for more performance, Synology for more uh, app integration and overall look and feel. But now that Synology is starting to push their own hard drives, you have a premium that can add on to 2x factors for hard drives. All right, well, that's for their big ones. For their little ones, they haven't done that yet. So you can't penalize them on that notion. They haven't done it yet, but they still have been lagging behind on networking options where QNAP is offering multi-gig or more than one 10-gig port. Right now, we saw on the uh, DS1522+, Plus, they have a 10-gig expansion, but it's a single-port card. And it's a proprietary card, which... You know, people complain about right when you're asking 150 bucks for a little 10 gig card. It's not nothing to be able yeah. to add that onto a $700 NAS. The easiest way to re- uh, really answer that is you're not really going to run into a problem where you're going to have a bad decision buying QNAP or Synology. You're you might find pros and cons. You might find an area where uh, certain sales price might lead you in a given direction, but they. You're going to have uh, a certain underlying trust with each platform that you're probably not going to regret. Um, you start to move down that uh, away from those models, and you might run into issues where the UI just feels incredibly dated. Things that well, you could just say it. We just sent a NAS back that wasn't up to our standards, and we didn't even complete the review. Yeah, we ran into uh, a lot of like buggy UI quirks with a Asus Store model. Um, and we've seen that with other models in the past where they just don't have the um, R&D budgets to, um, to properly design an OS that flows and works well with modern uh, devices. Now, a lot of the issues that we had were really common things. It was like we're going through our setup of uh, testing and recreating our um, uh, SMB shares and our iSCSI LUNs. And I switched over from uh, hard drive to uh, flash, and I was going through deleting the uh, iSCSI LUNs, 
And I was like, okay, do you want to delete? Yes. And the thing stayed there. You want to delete? Yes. And they're like, some would delete, some wouldn't. And it ended up being easier to um, delete the entire disk group than to uh, try and fight with it. And like there were other kind of oddities that you had to uh, work through, but I haven't run into those problems with Synology QNAP in like a decade. Well, and it's one thing if you're doing this in a home lab and you can afford to mess around and, and not blow away production data. But as we look into remote office, branch office type use cases, you kind of want it to be solid, right? Well, even in a home environment, imagine recommending one of those models to a parent. And all of a sudden, like, I mean, a parent's probably not going to be doing iSCSI ones, but... <laughs> Certainly not mine. <laughs> you run into an issue where all of a sudden you're trying to diagnose a problem um, remotely. And one of the weird things, like, uh, security's been a huge concern with a lot of NAS models. Yeah, QNAP gets banged on that for past transgressions. I think recently they've been pretty yeah, good. Yeah, and a big part of it is don't have open services uh, running that expose you over the wire unless you absolutely need them. And you'll find that where uh, you turn on, uh, you go through the setup process, and it doesn't, it doesn't even want you to use the um, default user admin anymore. You have right. to set something separate. You have to create a, um, a custom password when you uh, first set it up. And um, you turn on the Asistore model, default username and password until uh, after you log in as admin admin. And their security prompt at the beginning is, do you want to use their default ports? Like you can use a port, like port scanners that can scan every available port on a given device in a, like a split second or so has been, they've been around for a long time. Changing well, the port number isn't a security measure. And we did that piece on how to secure NAS. And I think the first or second thing we said was if you have a default account, even named admin, get rid of it. Yeah. And that's where um, a lot of the uh, security patches that came out on uh, QNAP or Synology were if you had one of those models where you've been upgrading your uh, thing through the years, you moved your hard drives in a new system, you might have been um, grandfathered into an older security process. It warned you daily of like, every time you log in, if you have the user admin, change it. And like, it, it wants you to force the process. And I think um, QNET might even disable that and make you uh, put in another administrator user below that. But they're, they're move, they've moved so far beyond a lot of those um, early problems. And a, li a big part of it is just don't have it open unless you need to have it operating to um, the internet. And uh, I think that's a part that um, some vendors like, hey, what can we do to like be a little more secure? And like, it's just weird some of the decisions that they make. So we've done like six minutes riffing on, <laughs> on the best small NAS, but uh, I think what it comes down to is that basically we're focusing on Synology and QNAP because we've had the best experience with them really over the last decade, right? Yeah, and a lot of it comes down to what models could I recommend to friends and family or readers and say like, you deploy this, you're not gonna run into the problems. And I've been around the QNAP and Synology ecosystem long enough where either one, outside of maybe going for a one bay model that's like severely underpowered for a specific mm -hmm. use case, you're not gonna find problem. you're not gonna find massive problems. You go to other models, and even we've seen with um, uh, certain large vendors like uh, WD, they enter the space. And then leave. Yeah, and you're left with certain models where uh, if, it's out and like if it's up and running, you're left with security flaws that you either disconnect entirely from the internet or you move on to something else. You right. So it's, 
That's it's, a good point. So Synology and QNAP aren't going anywhere unless they were to conceivably go under because it is their only product, right? So yeah. they've got to keep going. At a real high level, from my view, I like QNAP for hardware innovation. They're doing a lot with NVMe. They're yeah. doing multi-gig, as you said. They're not. They're they're less apt to make you take away something to get something. So we've seen a lot of times in in small NAS where if you want SSD caching, it's on a card. And if it's on a card, there's one slot. You can either have 10 gig or caching, but not both. And we're still seeing that with models today. Um, QNAP's got a lot of innovation in software. It's just different, a little bit different than DSM. On the Synology side, we like their DSM. Their virtualization station is great. They've got security stuff. They've got surveillance stuff that we actually we use here um, that's really great. But they tend to lag on the hardware side. So their NVMe story is not good. And their multi-gig story is not good either. Yeah, it's the prosumer use cases that we generally uh, have issues with Synology. I mean, uh, with a QNet model or even the Ossistore model, you uh, fire the thing up with uh, NVMe flash, and you can use that for a, um, a straight flash volume. Mm-hmm. You can't do that on a uh, Synology. It's cache only. It's right? cache only. So you're, the big problem with that is a, you're not able to have additive capacity with flash. It's no longer the days of like, hey, I have like a 50 gigabyte uh, flash device in front of hard drives. A lot of people, they're buying flash as their primary storage mechanism. I want to have everything operate on flash. I don't want to have that hard drive. Or maybe I want to have hard drives for my photos and movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like applications on flash, you don't have that option uh, unless you use uh, SATA. Uh, you can't do that with NVMe. So there's there's some areas there where I uh, I think Synology could really improve those um, those items. And then you run into the thing of like, well... Why don't you want to support multi-gig? Or why do we have models that are premium models that just have one gig by default? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of odd decisions. There. All right. So it depends on what you want um, and how advanced you are, right? Because we like QNAP and Synology for the package stuff. If you're fancy and want to roll your own and have full features functionality, then True NAS probably is the, the better way to go. All right. <laughs> we, uh, we spent a lot of time making videos about caddies in the last week or so um one of our i can't use the username one of our uh tiktok followers was more or less just why don't servers add an eject button and get off the caddy system caddies everyone hates caddies all the replies in those videos were caddy suck caddy suck caddy suck i think you know, a big part of it is um you have if you look at some of our older enterprise hardware you'll find a particular oem that uh, will make all the uh, given models and if you don't have that front cover on, you could probably have like-for-like similarities and use the same uh, caddying law systems. But most vendors, their chassis aren't made with a standard size. You'll have some vendors that will fit 24 uh, 2.5-inch hard drives or SSDs on the front. Some will go 25. The heights will be a little, just a little bit different. There's, there's a big mix of how vendors will operate hardware. And then you go into... Um, a uh, large scale enterprise and the difference between SATA and SAS could be a, you have a one inch long uh, interposer fit, uh, that fits in front of that, that helps the um, uh, thing communicate for uh, dual channel across multiple controllers, maybe with a SATA device that you wouldn't necessarily find with a uh, server. So there's so many different um, situations where 
a, um, a common size might not work, but a lot of it comes down to, I think we've seen vendors where they just want to have their own uh, color and design scheme that fits the front of that particular server, and that's why they change it. Well, I think I, you could argue they also like charging you 20 bucks for that part too when they sell you the hard drive. Or well, SSD. I'd say it's probably far more than twenty dollars <laughs> for that uh, drive. I mean, a lot of vendors will have it two or three x. But we we do have the one Intel uh, OEM server that has the the eight NVMe bays inbuilt, and they have a little integral flip down doors. And you've used the heck out of that system, and the doors seem to hold up. I mean, it's not the worst design to just integrate those into the backplane. Yeah, I mean that design I think works well, though you probably have a. Um, in that system, it's an Intel branded system. Mm -hmm. They probably don't care what drives you're using because they uh, they touch SATA and um, NVMe. And as long as it's 15 mil, though, we haven't. Have you tried to put any of the seven mil drives in well, there? Well, they have a little adapter for that. It's kind of like a little cage that clips onto it that gives a little more space to fit into it. But yeah. they probably don't care what goes into it because they don't make hard drives. Like they don't have. They just don't worry about that. I think. Um, I but still make those Optane drives. Yeah. But I think as you go towards um, a lot of the vendors, they just do it because they can. And most of the customers buying those aren't really running into the problems that, of like, hey, I can't find the caddies. They're buying the drives from Dell, from HP, and they're buying the warranty. Usually it's a three generations old, four generations old. It hits the home lab space. It's like, what do I do with caddies? Because by the way, something that could be like maybe a dollar part is selling for $60 on eBay because there's not as many floating around. Yeah. Um, another user on, on TikTok, we got asked about um, if we could give people advice on networking. And my reply was along the lines of, um, if you saw our networking <laughs> You wouldn't be asking for advice, and and in the comments for that, it was it was spirited conversation with about half of our audience understanding what we do and why we tend to be a little sloppy on networking. Um, but one guy did have an interesting question: What's with all the fiber? Fiber is for distance, not latency, speed anymore. Just asking. So we do have a lot of those thin blue fiber cables behind the rack. How do you think about that? Well, it depends on what type of networking you're using. Usually you could say, well, okay, well, Ethernet versus uh, fiber channel, but those uh, OM2, OM3, OM4 grade wires, you can use them for fiber channel or Ethernet. You can use them for uh, 16, 32 uh, gig fiber or 10, 25 gig uh, Ethernet. And a big part, if you're running 100 different cables, the loom diameter on shortreach copper is going to be a, a heck of a lot. Bundle yeah. at that point. Right? Yeah, and for enterprise uh, switching in general, uh, a lot of it comes down to where the uh, cost is coming into uh, the ecosystem. Uh, if you're running um, uh, CAT6 or CAT7, your little port module interface guy is on the switch and on your uh, networking card, and you're paying for that cost there, maybe not in the cable. Mm -hmm. For an enterprise switch, um, you're probably paying for it in the transceiver on either side, or if you have short reach copper, it's that transceiver built into uh, the cord itself. So it depends on how you're leveraging it. But I mean, it, it's going to come down to how things are deployed in a given environment. It, there's not really a one size fits all 
uh, type of situation that um, clearly defines like if you are running Ethernet, you have to run this. If you're running Fiber Channel, you have to run that. It's more of you use what you've probably been using and what works well for your given environment. And to be fair, we still do see a latency advantage on Fiber Channel in some cases. So it's not as if this latency argument is totally gone. Yeah, and a lot of people think, well, hey, Fiber Channel is slower because it's uh, different speeds. But as generational changes happen, I mean, you'll find Fiber Channel leapfrog, uh, leapfrogs uh, Ethernet. Ethernet will leapfrog Fiber Channel. Well, it depends on the rest of the system, though, too, because the drives inside are only going to go so fast. Yeah, and then what the storage and OS and all those things support. Right. Okay, so we got the um, updated Lenovo P620 in uh, last week or so. That's the new Th Threadripper Pro inside. And this one caused um, uh, a lot of uh, polarization of our audience of people. Yeah, I, I remember this. It was the, the why don't you just build it? Yeah, they're going build your own. And then th this guy, Hardware Plug on Instagram, uh, said, I don't like the fans on the DRAM, which. Okay, that's that's fine. The DIY is better. I attributed that to many. Um, but then we had plenty of other people. Mr. Lemurs, who's one of our, our big Instagram fans, says uh, his friend has uh, presumably the P620 before this one and loves it. It's a beast. So yeah. you know, aside from hating, uh, how do you hate the fans on the DRAM? Uh, I suppose it might limit uh, clearances, but I mean... Honestly, a lot of these systems... There's a workstation, though. We're not gaming on it and trying to run LEDs and liquid cooling in this one, or well, not yet, anyway. It depends on the environment that they're being pushed into. And uh, going on the first part of uh, Build Your Own, uh, when we first reviewed the, uh, P, uh, the first generation P620, we also had the comparable Soup Micro at the time, mm -hmm. which that, uh, that chassis and motherboard you could buy uh, your own and kind of roll your own platform. Um, for roughly the equivalent parts that could fit inside of it, that Soup Micro chassis was like 30% larger than yeah. the P620. And it was also louder. And uh, performance ranges were around the same. That one had, uh, I think might have had liquid cooling for, I'm not sure if it was liquid cooling or had just a ton of fans, but they both operated under the, um, uh, the same performance limits and the, the the smaller Lenovo was quieter. And you tend to find that with a lot of the OEM systems, maybe you can't put in every single part you wish you could do from the aftermarket uh, mm -hmm. area, but... But look, if you're a data scientist or you have um, a family of, of people in that, that are doing rendering for your movies or whatever, like... You want to buy something off the shelf that's the same parts across the board. At a certain point, tweaking the thing is not the point. Having a reliable system with, by the way, field service on the warranty and things like that is more the point. And plus, I mean, you talked about the efficiency of the system. Just the power supply on that P620, the way you just chunk the handle and pick it up and it's gone. Like if that power supply was to fail, that change is... 32 seconds to pop the lid and pop yeah. that and drop the new one, restart? Yeah, any of our, um, any of our models uh, that we've uh, built our own, if you have a power supply that fails, if it's not modular, you're trying to like untangle all those wires and disconnect and them. And even if it them. is modular though, you still have to take off the side panel, probably both, unscrew it, yank it out, decable at and the same time. And I hope it's the same model because if it's not, the little connectors could right. vary slightly. But you're left with a big difference, and that's just on power supply. And on the uh, the comment towards uh, the little fans on the DRAM, 
Maybe Lenovo is operating, designed their system to operate at a higher uh, ambient temperature spec. Mm-hmm. And by having little fans on that uh, DRAM, it can run stable at a higher temperature. Well, either way, though, I mean, you're talking about a workstation audience where if they're dropping 20 grand on a system, they want a fully supported system that they know is going to be operational for those workloads. Yeah, by the way, AMD specifically sells those uh, CPUs only OEMs. You can't build it yourself unless you find a gray market. Yes, and that uh, is a even ten or eleven thousand dollar CPU at that point. Yeah, it's a lot of risk to build your own too. By the way, with no warranty and be dropping in gray market parts that yeah. are that expensive. Yeah, um, we've started to have conversations come up um, a little bit about the ME5. Somebody was asking about you know, if they could roll their own or how do you start to roll your own dual controller sort of enterprise type storage and you and I have separately been having the conversation about drive cost in servers so when you go through Dell.com or whatever and I think a lot of it was around how Micron just recently launched a new enterprise SATA drive and I was saying man it really feels like SATA is down to like M.2 at least in the US for servers. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was a thing where um, some people didn't really follow the market as closely uh, uh, as soon as like COVID hit, but like you have this two to three year gap where everyone's thinking, well, NVMe is the premier fastest product. It has to be the most expensive. And we've even had uh, questions come up of like NVMe versus uh, SAS. And I knew there was a difference there, but I, I started looking towards NVMe and SATA. And for the, uh, for the exact same capacity points, SATA and SAS are twice the cost of NVMe even for the same uh, like single drive right per day or multi drive right per day those drives because not as they're not they don't have as much competition anymore mm-hmm. they're effectively double the cost you're paying them premium to have a slower product a premium for sata is scary so if you're out there configuring systems you know hopefully well, you're working with someone that that will help coach you a little bit better <laughs> but if if you're configuring these servers NVMe is not to be feared. It, it's not scary. It's not new at this point. It's definitely what systems should be based on. Yeah, and it's you're going to get a heck of a lot higher performance profile of a really any enterprise NVMe drive over any SATA enterprise, uh, enterprise drive. So there was another thing around ME5 um, that I'll paraphrase a little bit. Um, the question was basically around thinking about storage at branch offices um, and trying to figure out what to do there. And actually we started at, at NAS because that's a pretty common answer, but for the for larger groups, so maybe not a group of five or 10 accountants, but maybe a couple hundred or a big law office where you need storage that's more available. So you want to go to something that's HA, something that's a little bit more robust. Um, what does that market look like to you in, in the sort of lower end of the SMB scale? This market's been interesting. And actually, I think um, the turning point was um, a number of years ago when Synology came out with their first uh, dual controller NAS. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think it was uh, VNXE 3200 or something. Oh, yeah. Um, old old uh, EMC. Yeah. And then there was like the SC5020 from uh, Dell uh, while they're still separate companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The equivalent model with the same capacity on Synology was um, encroaching at the same price range as what uh, Dell or EMC was offering. 
and even I think uh, HP had a uh, um, uh, competing product at the time that kind of played in that like twenty twenty five thousand dollars space. Um, so you're left with a do you want to go with Synology and maybe they have the uh, same warranty terms, maybe probably not four hour turnaround or things like that, or do you want to go with a um, an enterprise vendor that's now pushing really low on their uh, entry pricing? And we still see that. Uh, so as we're talking about like, hey, we've seen Synology and QNAP really mature on their uh, NAS side, we've still seen this pressure at that 20,000 mark where they're trying to push up at the same time as um, a Dell or a, a NetApp are pushing down in that price spectrum. And you're finding like sub $20,000 models. Oh, uh, I mean, ME5, granted, it's only two hard drives, but it starts at twelve grand. Yeah, and then there's... And C190 from NetApp's oh yeah, another so, one. Yeah, Dell's, op- uh, Dell's offering is going to be HA, but it's going to be block only. Mm-hmm. Um, and HPE has a similar model on that same chassis. Well, H- the other thing that... Well, they do. They've got that. But they also have GreenLake now. And a lot of people are scared of GreenLake because it sounds big and expensive. But they'll deliver on an annualized basis a solution with servers, with um, switching, and with, at the low end, nimble storage for a number that's wildly affordable. Actually, when I was at HP Discover, I sat with a... uh, the IT guy for a six or seven hundred lawyer firm in Philadelphia, and they've gone all GreenLake. They just found it was easier to consume the uh, the gear. They ended up putting it in a colo, but that style of, of ownership and management was easier than than having the stuff on prem. So just add me adding to what you're saying about the number of units available in that entry price band, the cost associated with that as a service model may also be appealing. Yeah, and you're probably going to find more people that know how to leverage and optimize um, you know, ME5 or you're going to uh, like low-end net or entry net up on ONTAP, mm-hmm. how to provision that in an enterprise space versus how to provision Synology or CNAP in an enterprise space. It's just you're going to run into issues of not that you can't do it, but you're probably going to find more resources on the bigger vendors out there than you will on the smaller vendors. More resources, more more data services, more reliability, more everything, right? Yeah. And that's just the, the tough thing. I mean, it, if, it, if there was a price gap on there, you could say, well, you're going to have a, a large savings on one end, but that, that price gap hasn't really existed. Even as you start to move up those models, we were looking at the uh, price ranges. I mean, we were looking, because uh, we've uh, known and played around with the uh, NetApp side. The C190, that is still an incredibly competitive platform, and it offers data reduction. Mm-hmm. And you could be on all flash uh, C190. I think they even do their uh, their licenses as like an it's all. It's all bundled. Yeah. yeah. And then you can go to like, the A250 for NVMe. But you're competing against solutions that um, offer data reduction to get around the raw capacity offered. And they're doing data reduction with no impact to performance. A lot of other vendors can't say that, especially when, when you're in that lower uh, lower enterprise space. Um, even a TrueNAS or any of those guys that play in that area, you can get data reduction, but doing it without a performance impact is incredibly tough. And that's just storage. I mean, there's also in that price band, you got to be looking at HCI. So Azure Stack's a player there through Dayton or, or other resellers. vSAN's potentially, depending on budget, a player there. Um, we had a call with these Verge I.O. guys, which were 
um, somewhat new to us. There's a lot of software-defined guys out there that are interesting. So once you start, in my mind, once you start looking at a total spend for storage that's over about 10 grand, maybe 10 to 15, that's really when you need to be seriously thinking about these enterprise-grade solutions that will bring you much more reliability, stability, and capability uh, in that package versus continuing to scale up through yeah. the NAS investment. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question. This one's from, from me. Why are there so many batteries in the office and portable power station reviews on the website? Oh, so I, I love power, I love batteries. Um, and the portable power stations have been popping up in the market. I think some of it might just be um, the, the cost of lithium ion cells has dropped enough that you can start putting them in more things and it's not, it's not as expensive as it, as it once used to be. Um, but right now, I mean, you have um, power grid issues in Texas. You have power grid issues uh, in California. Like, the items are coming up more often. And uh, a lot of these power station devices, which are generally geared towards uh, someone that might live off-grid or operate out of a RV or something like a that. van down by the river. Yeah. That's not always the case with these, and the capabilities of a lot of these uh, more premier units are really impressive. You have um, EcoFlow and others where um, you can operate the thing as a UPS, and you can have your IT services kind of flow through it. And if you're in an area that, um, let's say your power uh, power grid goes down, okay, your lights and stuff go off, maybe you want to keep your uh, POS system up and running these batteries can do that and they have a lot of them have a much more affordable price point than where you'd find a traditional ups and well, that's but that's a good point like here i mean we've got a bunch of stuff so we can keep working by candlelight if we need um but if you're a small retailer or even a large retailer maybe you've got infrastructure but rather than to tell your customers you can't shop during because we've had some summer storm that's taken the power out being able to keep at least your POS online and your core system so you can check people out is is relevant. Yeah, and maybe your camper isn't a camper, but it's a food truck, and you're operating remotely anyways, and now you operate in a state that is starting to push you away from running generators or something like that. You have, you're more reliant on uh, batteries. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where I think we're starting to see a lot of competitors. I mean, we're the amount of outreach we have on companies that just want to look at the random, uh, the different products, and everyone's been focusing on things, and some will focus on small scale going up. Others will primarily um, uh, position themselves on like really large solutions that could power uh, the bulk of an office or house as their entry uh, offering. All of these different models are they are kind of positioned towards the home or off grid. But the use cases on them uh, for a small office or an IT environment is just kind of interesting to us because it's, it's a lot of power. It keeps your systems up and running, and you probably have more budget available to, like, hey, every hour I'm down, I'm missing out on this amount of sales. It makes business sense to uh, in, invest in one of these things. Sure. You don't have comparable models from... Um, Eaton, Schneider Electric, any of the, any of the they've traditional... They've gone that far small in their scale. Oh well, yeah, I mean, and there a lot of theirs aren't really designed to operate uh, where you can turn them on if it's not connected to power. That's mm -hmm. not its primary use case. Mm -hmm. These, with the other vendors, is, and you're finding more remote type, uh, especially with edge offerings expanding now, there's a lot of these use cases. So 
we're dabbling in this space, trying to see what uh, what makes sense. Uh, some vendors um, uh, definitely have a much stronger engineering background than others, and uh, I think that's one of the cool things that we've seen going through the, um, our little models of like scaling up from really small things now onto uh, larger ones. We're seeing how they can play more into a traditional IT model versus just a hey, I need to spin up some notebooks and stuff off like in the woods uh, somewhere on site. Now it's really a can I operate uh, remotely with limited um, like spotty uh, power connection? Mm-hmm. You can do that now, and that's kind of where we're focusing on uh, these power things as they come. Uh, yeah, and for a couple hours too. It's not just eight to ten minutes of holdup anymore. Well, and these and that's where I think this gets really impressive on the uh, the battery, uh, like the density of these batteries. You have certain models where uh, our our big uh, twelve kilowatt models uh, in the lab right now. Um, I think moderately loaded, they'll give maybe 15 to 30 minutes of runtime. You scale that down on the lithium-ion side, you have things where you're moderately loading them, and they have like three, four hours of runtime. Right. Or those models that like, hey, you can charge your Tesla or your electric car off of them. I mean, it, there's just a lot of crazy things that these guys are doing, and the engineering that's going into them that we just haven't seen on the UPS space because one's more here fits in a data center, and this is more of a... Here's it, here's it fitting into a more modern, changing world. All right. Well, there's the battery question. So if you like this format, let us know. We'll keep it up. If uh, we don't hear from you, then we'll just quietly shoot this thing in the back of the back of the <laughs> barn. But we're always open to your, your questions. We try to answer seriously every single question we can on social media. You can also hit us at info at storageview.com to submit your very own question. And uh, we'll be happy to help. Thanks for tuning in.